this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. So this passage in Ephesians uh, comes at a key moment in the book. It comes at the major transition uh, in the book of Ephesians. The first two chapters of Ephesians, two and a half chapters, have been caught up with things that Paul knows that the Ephesians need to know. The basics of what God has done for them and is doing in the world in Christ. What we might call the gospel, the good news that they're to receive and to believe. After this passage, he moves on to talking about what they're to do in light of what they know, in light of what's true, in light of the gospel. Uh, there's, a, there's a chain that comes in chapters four, five, uh, just following this part of Ephesians. That's over and over again, Paul starts paragraphs with therefore. Therefore, in light of everything that's gone before it, in light of everything that you know is true, therefore do this. And it's a pretty comprehensive list, ranging from everything from the relationships of children to parents, husbands to wives, employees to employers, relationships within the church. It's this list of therefores. Because of what's true, every one of our relationships, everything we do in the world is affected. And this passage comes right at the middle, right at the, the pivot point in this book. And honestly, most of us, uh, whether we are Christian or not, live without this pivot point. We live as though what basically matters is what we know and what we do, right? If I know the right things, then I'll do the right things. If I think the right thoughts, then I'll obey and I'll live the right kind of life. Uh, in our world, the most, prom the most prominent and popular view of human personhood and human change is what we commonly call cognitive behavioral thinking, right? This in layman's terms, if you have ever watched Dr. Phil, and I don't presume that all of you have, Dr. Phil uh, operates from a cognitive behavioral model of human beings, right? If you've ever seen Dr. Phil, what you need to do is stop that stinking thinking, right? You need to think right, and then you'll do right. That's, that's the last imitation. Um, that, if you, that if you think the right thoughts, if you, if, you, if you change the way you think about the world, you'll change the way that you live. And this can be helpful. Sometimes you watch Dr. Phil, maybe, and go, oh, that's, that's useful. It can be helpful for us, but it's far from sufficient. It's far from sufficient to actually change us, to actually lead us to live new kinds of lives. Right? The problem, of course, is that we know all kinds of stuff that we don't do. We, we know cognitively all sorts of right ideas that we are powerless to actually live out in our lives. 
right? I don't know, as a parent, I don't know how many times in the last week I've said to one of my children, you should know better, right? You're old enough to know better than X, you know, pulling that piece of porcelain down off the shelf, uh, sticking a fork in, a, in an electrical socket, right? You're, you're old enough to know better than to do these things, right? You, you should know better. But when you start, just as I start to get frustrated, I remember, yeah, but the, the world is full of people who ought to know better. Uh, on a day, I'm old enough to know better, right? I, I should know enough to know better than to do half the things that I do. Uh, this week, actually, as I was working on this sermon, right around the time I'm writing this part of this sermon, I'm up here in my office at the City Rescue Mission, and uh, Troy, some of you guys know Troy, he comes in, stick, knocks on my door, sticks his head in, and goes, hey, I just, I baked a chocolate, a double chocolate cake. It's in the kitchen. Chocolate cake, chocolate frosting, right? It's nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I said, no, Troy, I, I you know, I, I shouldn't. I'm gonna, thanks, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And I get there and I start writing and I'm focused. I'm trying to think. I'm getting frustrated. And all I can think about, double chocolate cake, right? <laughs> and so, and so finally, after a 9.04 a.m., right? After four minutes of agonizing struggle, I get up. I've earned a break, right? Um, and so I get up, and I go, and I slice some chocolate cake. I should know better, right? I should know what simple sugars do to me. I should know that it's not good for me. It's not healthy for me. I should know that it's, uh, that it's not a healthy decision. But in the moment when you're making these decisions, something short-circuits your thinking, right? Something your, your desire, your want to, your longing can short-circuit what you ought to know better than. In this passage in Paul, what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is that if you want to connect your knowing to your doing, it takes taking into account this most important part of you. What he calls here, uh, and uses different language, once he calls it the heart, uh, once he calls it your inner person, the inner man, right, that there's this inner reality that you have to take seriously. In the Bible, your heart, uh, don't think just emotions. Don't think Cupid and his arrow. The heart is the seat of your longing, of your desire, of your love. Uh, the author of Proverbs in Proverbs 4 says, Above all else, guard your heart because it's the source of your whole life. It's the wellspring of your life. That out of your heart, out of your desire, out of your love is going to flow your whole life, every, everything about you. And what matters most at a heart level is the receiving and giving of love, right? What Paul says here, his prayer for the Ephesians that we're going to look at, it's got a, it's, it can, it, there's a lot of rich theology going on. There's a lot of uh, statements on top of statements in this, this brief prayer, one sentence in the Greek. But the core of it is what he says, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. What your heart needs more than anything else is to be rooted and grounded in love, to know that you're loved, to know uh, a love that you can't lose, a love that you can rest in, a love that, you, that is solid enough for you to be rooted and grounded in it. In his wonderful little book, uh, Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen, a uh, great Catholic spiritual writer, uh, sets off to, to answer the question of a friend of his. He had this friend, Fred Bratman, who was a secular journalist and writer in New York City, who asked him this question. This is what uh, Bratman wanted to know. He says, speak to us, that's him and his non-believing friends, 
about a vision larger than our changing perspectives and about a voice deeper than the clamorings of our mass media. Speak to us about something or someone greater than ourselves. Speak to us about God. So tell us what's, what's most necessary, the, the basics of what life with God is about without all the religious jargon. Cut it straight. Let us know what we need to know. This is how Nowen starts his letter back. Fred, all I want to say to you is you are the beloved. And all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. Knowing that we're God's beloved, knowing that we're loved, is what frees us. It's what changes our hearts. It's what changes our hearts and enables us to start living a life that is in keeping with that love. That's very close to Paul's prayer here, that they would know this rooting and grounding love in Christ. And for Paul, I I love this section of Ephesians. For Paul, the good news of this love is this, that you, a human being, limited as you are by your own frailty, limited as you are by your own mortality and sin, that you are caught up when you believe in Christ, that you are drawn in to the actual life of the Trinity itself, that God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, have lived in eternity in perfect love, each giving themselves to the other, each knowing peace and fullness in that love, each not lacking anything of themselves, giving to one another that perfect love, through Christ, you actually become a recipient of. You become a participant in. Right? You don't become the fourth person of the Trinity. But you do become a recipient. You become loved, as loved by the Father as the Son is by the Father. As full of the Spirit as the Son is filled by the Spirit. You get brought in to this Trinitarian love. We see uh, each member of the Trinity is referenced here in this prayer. And that's basically what we're going to look at. He starts with the grounding of the love that we have by the Father. Look at what he says in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Right, so he's bowing before God and calling God the Father. You know, it's living 2,000 years after Christ. It's easy for us to just kind of read over that. Yeah, it's really common to call God Father. But this is the revolutionary teaching of Jesus, right? That you can call his father, father. That you can approach the God of the universe, the God who molded planets and stars and formed the Milky Way, the God of everything. You can call him Abba. You can call him father. It's incredible. This this shows that Paul, living after Jesus, has started to approach the father of Jesus as his father. And so he says he bows before the Father, from whom every family on earth gets its name. What he's saying essentially is that every human being, member of every family, not just Abraham's family, not just Israel. Remember we said earlier that he's writing to a a congregation mixed of Jew and Gentile, mixed of different races. Every one of you, regardless of your human parentage, every family on earth derives its name from God the Father. Naming in the Bible is a sign of authority, 
Right? God gives Adam and Eve authority to name the creatures of the earth. So it's saying that every family of the earth comes under God's authority. Whether or not uh, you think you do or not. Right? That every person that's ever been born has his source in God, her source in God, and is ultimately accountable to God. God is their, their king, their, their authority. And also this Greek word uh, for family here insinuates uh, a group of people of a common origin. So saying that God is our, our common origin, he's the source of all life, he's the giver of all life, that all people share a common father, that we are made in love by a father, and that we are made in love for a father. Right? God created us in his image to need him so that we would only find our deepest fullness, our deepest joy in a secure relationship with our father. That's what we're made for. To be made in the image of a relational God is to be made to need a love relationship with your Father. To be rooted and grounded. You know, this is the, what, what psychologists tell us is the fundamental need of every human being, of every child, is to be rooted and grounded in the love of their parents. Right? It's what they call a secure attachment. Right, to have a child to be able to look at his mom or his dad, her mom or her dad, and know that they're loved, know that they're cared for, to know that mom and dad are there for them, actually gives them a grounding that frees them up to take risk, that frees them up to become who they're going to become. Right? The greatest gift is a, you know, on Mother's Day as a mom that you give to your kids is an unconditional love that grounds them in knowing that they're loved, that they're cared for, that eventually they can leave. Right? They can go to college. They can move out. They can, they can have a rooted base that sets them free for the rest of their lives. But you can't have without a, a solid foundation rooted and grounded in love. And what that human parent relationship does is it points us beyond itself to the relationship that we are made to have with our Father, that we be rooted and grounded in His love, so certain of it, so sure of it, that we can live our lives with freedom knowing that we're loved by the Father. So he goes from the universal uh, fatherhood of God to this love of Christ um, that he actually, I love that this part in Paul, as Paul's praying for his people, he struggles to come up with language to attach to the love of Christ. Look at what he says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see what he, you get? He, pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you would know something that you can't know. That you would, that you would grow in your knowledge of something that ultimately outstrips your ability to know it. That you would go further up and further in, always coming to know more of the love that Christ has for you. But knowing that no matter how much you're able to take it in, you'll never actually grasp the true depth and height and breadth and immensity of Christ's love for you. It's beyond knowing. And I think this is the, the point at which our human metaphors for God's love start to break down. Right? God, in, in the scriptures, God gives us so many analogies, paints so many different word pictures to help us understand the love that he has for us, right? It's like the love 
of a husband and a wife. It's like the love between a father and a child. It's like the love of a shepherd and a sheep, the king and his people. It's like all of these different kinds of love. But ultimately, each one of those kinds of love falls apart, right? Ultimately, each one of them, even, the, even in the best of situations, right? Even the best human parent is not the father that God is, right? Even the best husband is a shattered image of God's husband, uh, husbandry to his wife, his people, right? Even the best of human loves is just kind of a dark mirror reflecting the love that God ultimately has for us. And I think, it's on the, I think it is in the love of Christ, the love that drove Christ to give himself completely and utterly on the cross, that shows us just how conditional most of our human experiences of love are. Right? All, all love, all love of all of its different kinds is a giving of the self. Right? It's a laying down of your life, a giving up of yourself. Right? The key to loving in human relationships is to, to give enough of yourself. Right? We have relationships where we give ourselves completely, like the relationship between husbands and wives, where you're supposed to be utterly vulnerable, utterly self-giving. But the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be loving towards our spouses, towards our friends, even towards our enemies. Right? That there's an appropriate giving of yourself, an appropriate vulnerability for even the most superficial of our relationships and even the ones who are, who are our enemies. But every time we give of ourselves, it's always with a little bit of self-protection mixed in. It's always with something held back. It's always with some of our selfishness mixed in. Right? The, the rub if, you know, in, in loving anyone is where their desires start to bump up to your desires where their needs start to bump up against your own selfishness. And all of us struggle and we hold back. But Jesus gives himself utterly and completely in the cross, holds nothing back, gives his very life to the point of death so that we would know, know that we know, and know just so deeply that we can't doubt it, that God the Father loves us, that he loves us so much that he died for us, that we would never have to doubt it. Only that is a love that's solid enough to really and utterly root us and ground us. To know that God will give anything for us because he has. He's given Christ. He's given his very self so that we can be rooted and grounded in this unknowable love. So loved by the Father, loved by the Son, and then ultimately that love sealed into us, empowered into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul prays in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the spirit would indwell your heart, so that Christ would indwell your heart, empowering it, enlarging it enough to take in more and more the love that you have from the Father. St. Augustine uh, put it this way. He says, In celebrating the communion of our life together in Christ, the triune God is lover, beloved, and the love that binds together the lover and the beloved. That's, okay, what's going on? So God the Father is the lover. He's the one whose heart goes out to his creation and love, 
especially going out to his son, Jesus, in full and perfect love. When we're included in Jesus, we're, we're God's beloved. And what Augustine is saying is that the spirit is the love between us. It's the love that indwells. It's the love that empowers. It's the love that knits us together in Christ, sealing us in him, enabling us to know and to commune with, commune with God, not just at an intellectual level, but at a heart level. Okay, practically, what on earth does that mean? What does that mean for us? How do we live into a relationship with God the Father, Son, and Spirit at a heart level? First, uh, it gives us a picture of what faith really is. If you're here with us and you've been uh, investigating Christianity, seeking to understand whether or not what Jesus claims is really true and what it might mean for your life, know that what Jesus is offering you is his whole self. Not just some good teachings, uh, not just some practical advice to get your life on track. That Jesus is giving himself utterly for us. And what he asks of you is your heart. Right? What most of us think when we start investigating faith is what we said at the beginning, that it's some stuff I need to know and that it's some stuff I'm going to have to do. Right? I'm going to have to assent to some beliefs that sound kind of crazy, that Jesus was born of a virgin, resurrected on the third day, that I'm going to have to wrap my mind around this stuff, and then I'm going to be asked to do some things that I'd prob honestly I'd rather not do. Right? I'm going to have to offer my body and my life and my bank account and my relationships, all of it, in submission to, to Jesus as king. And that, sound, that can sound really hard. And it is, if you only think of it as some stuff you have to believe and some stuff you have to do. But primarily what Jesus offers you is a relationship, a heart-level relationship with the one who's given himself to you, that you would receive his love and return his love and faith. So the Christian faith, the thing that honestly made faith so appealing to me and attractive to me is when I saw that it didn't require that I have to turn my brain off. Right? Christianity has good, solid answers for some of the things that can, that can make us doubt. I really believe that, that, that you can be a Christian and a thinker at the same time. But ultimately, Christianity has to become a religion of the heart, a faith that, that's rooted in relationship and love. That's one thing. Secondly, it means for those of you who are walking with Jesus, it means that you have to stop enough slow down enough to know what's going on in your heart, to look at your relationships, to look at what's going on around you, and to know how you're doing with God. And this is a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us to slow down long enough, to ask ourselves, at a heart level, beyond my thinking and my doing, I know that I'm busy, and I know that I know a bunch of stuff, and I know that there's more to do in life than I can keep up with. But at a How's my soul doing? I had a relationship with a pastor in Orlando when I, when I lived there, and we'd always meet up at Fiddler's Green, Irish pub. And I'd sit down, and the first question out of his mouth every time would be, how's your soul? And I always thought, that is a weird way to start, a, you know, to start just a, a casual conversation. But it was so valuable in my life to have someone in the midst of all the other relationships in my life that were wanting to talk about how the gators are doing or how the weather is or whether they're ever finally going to fix the interstate, you know, all these superficial things that we focus on. 
to have someone that relentlessly asked me, how's your soul? How's your life with God and with others? What story are your relationships telling you about your, about your heart? I love this quote from John Flavel, a, a Puritan pastor. Living over 300 years ago, he wrote, There are some people who have lived 40 or 50 years in the world and have had scarcely one hour's discourse with their own hearts. It's a hard thing to bring a man and himself together on such business. That was 300 years before cell phones. That was 300 years before. We have just constant distraction in our pocket at all times. and on the, we, just have, we have more distractions than ever before. How are your relationships? How is your soul? Are you in relationships with people who are willing to ask you and are willing to pursue it? Are you willing, if, if you look at your heart and realize, man, everything is not okay with me. I'm anxious. I'm distant. I, I don't know God at, a, at an intimate level. Or if I do, he seems like a stranger these days. Or I'm so racked with despair, it doesn't feel like he's real. Do you have friends that you can pursue to talk to about that? Do you have a counselor? a director in your life who can wisely walk alongside you and, and help you point, point out those things. Right? One of the, the deepest desires that I've had for this church is to be a place where counseling is a normal part of being a human. Right? That it's not, oh, counseling's for you when you're really, you know, that's for the, the messed up people. But no, that's for all of us that have a heart and occasionally it gets out of whack and occasionally needs to talk about it. Are you willing to, to look in that direction? How is your heart? Larry Crabb, a, a counselor that I, that I really like, talks about this as knowing your red dot before God. You ever walk into a mall, and they always got the, the kiosk, and it has the red dot that says, you are here? It says, oh, well, that's where I am. Are you able to slow down enough to find your red dot? Oh, that's where I am. I'm anxious. I'm doubting today. Today, I don't, I don't feel particularly like loving God. Are you aware of where you are and presenting that to God, knowing that he's there for you in it? And then finally, this idea of a, an inner life with God has to do with how we approach God in our scripture reading and our prayer, which is something that we're, that we're seeking after together. Do you do that as merely transactional? Or do you do it as a communion with the living God? When you, when you pursue God, when you come into worship or when you come to open your Bible and to open yourself to God in prayer, is it another transaction, another box to check off, another thing to do uh, because you know it's what good people should do or what Christians should do? Or do you go expecting intimacy, expecting communion, seeking God, willing to be silent enough, to be slow enough, to wait on God, to actually meet with Him? Because that's what He's after. He's after your heart. Father, Son, and Spirit drawing you in to Himself. Let's pray. Father, if I'm honest, uh, even as a pastor, uh, speaking of the communion uh, with you in your threeness and oneness, it honestly sounds like speaking a foreign language at times. It feels like talking about something that uh, the experience of which eludes me. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that in you we would come to know your Father as our Father. That in knowing you as our Savior, as our friend, as our brother, as our Redeemer, we would come to know the love of your Father permeating our hearts. And we would come to know the power of the Spirit, the very same Spirit that empowered you for ministry, the very same Spirit that, 
that spoke and filled your body and your resurrection, that we would come to be filled with that spirit, that we would come to be empowered with the very power and presence of the living God. Lord, help us to know communion with you in all of its fullness, that as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, we would be rooted and grounded in your love, that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.